0: Welcome to the June 14th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is in Ezra 9 and 10 and Acts chapter 1, but we will focus only on the New Testament reading in this podcast. If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at MattEllis1997 at gmail.com, and I'll put my email address in the podcast show notes. And regarding your question, I may answer it on an upcoming podcast. Let's get started. Acts chapter 1. As Luke begins the book of Acts, he lets the reader know that he had written a previous book. So Acts chapter 1 verse 1 says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He said, I wrote the first narrative as he begins the book of Acts. So when Luke says that he wrote the first narrative and then describes what the narrative was about, It's evident, it's obvious that he is referring to the gospel of Luke. That book recounted Jesus' birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and then ascension to heaven. And so Luke wrote the gospel of Luke to tell the story of Jesus' ministry, and then Luke wrote the second volume in his two-volume series. The second volume being the book of Acts, in which he was going to talk about how the early saints, as Jesus went back into heaven in Acts 1, how it is that the Holy Spirit began to work, the acts of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit began to work in the church and cause the movement called Christianity, that would eventually be called Christianity, how he took it from something so small to in chapter 16 or 17, the Christians are being accused of turning the world upside down. And so Luke recounts in his gospel, the ministry of Jesus. He recounts in the book of Acts why it mattered and how it played out in the early church. Well, we understand from Scripture that the Holy Spirit enabled the writers of Scripture to put their thoughts on the page. So let's talk a little bit, just a little bit, about how it is that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers or wrote how God, the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture using human agents. How did he do it? How did the Holy Spirit do it? Well, when we read the opening verses of Luke's Gospel, we understand that the Holy Spirit was not working in a vacuum he he didn't the holy spirit just didn't pick anybody and write a masterful book through them or actually a two volume set through them um he used luke's intense investigation he used luke's impressive intellect luke was a doctor by trade and he used his investigation into the facts and his intellect to for the holy spirit to write through luke the gospel of luke and book of Acts. Just listen to Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 where Luke is saying that it's implied that he's relying on the Holy Spirit, but he also said, I did my part. I studied. Listen to Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So this is me. I'm not reading scripture now. I'm just kind of taking a little pause and saying he referred to the fact that he was aware that he, he knew that there were many that had undertaken to compile a narrative about Jesus' life and ministry. And so it very well may be that he's referring to Matthew's gospel, to Mark's gospel, to John's gospel. And so he said, I'm aware that there are many that have undertaken to write a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us uh, so it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So the Holy Spirit inspired... the. the and, and what we mean by that is the Holy Spirit breathed out the book of Luke and the book of Acts, but yet he used someone who had studied. There's God's part, there's human part, right? Well, one more thing that I want to point out in uh, verse 1 is the name Theophilus. Well, Theophilus is a good Greek name, and it's made up of two words that are kind of shoved together. And in the Greek language, Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God. Thea means God. Philos is brotherly love, right? And so the name Theophilus meant friend of God or lover of God or maybe even loved of God. And so Theophilus may have been someone that Luke was writing to. Maybe he was actually writing to a guy whose name was Theophilus and saying, hey, this is a a narrative that I've investigated about Jesus. Maybe it was an evangelistic tool to a guy whose actual name was Theophilus. Or it may have been the name, Theophilus may have been the name, of a man who made it financially possible for Luke to study and write this book. Maybe it wasn't evangelistic. Maybe there was someone whose name was Theophilus who maybe was rich, and sometimes what they would do is they would foot the bill so that someone could do something, you know, write a book or do any number of things. And uh, so the the financer would, would make it possible. Maybe that's who Theophilus was. Or... It may simply be the nickname that Luke gave his readers, even you and me, assuming that all who would read about Jesus and the early church are friends of God, or soon would be. (laughs) And so I think that whenever he's writing to Theophilus, I tend to think the third option is, is it, that he is writing to anybody who's a lover of God, anybody who is a friend of God that wants to know about Jesus, wants to know about the early church and how it got started. Well, in verses 4 through 5, we read that Jesus had told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. Uh, This is something we need to address at least briefly, and there's two specific items we need to understand regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament was much different than in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on people who he empowered to do God's will. Not on all God followers, not all God followers in the Old Testament had the Spirit. Uh, and this happened, uh, the, the, the filling of the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit came on uh, Israel. some of Israel's judges, some of their prophets, some of their kings, and some of their other leaders. But the Holy Spirit only came upon someone temporarily. You know? He came on them, and then he was gone. You know, it's just Sometimes it was just a moment. Or it could be that someone had the Spirit for a prolonged period of time, but then because of grievous, unrepentant sin, the Holy Spirit left them, such as King Saul. And that's, in fact, why David, when he's repenting in the psalm, says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We don't pray that in the New Testament. That's an Old Testament prayer. We don't have to ask for God's Spirit not to be taken from us. It's not going to happen because that's Old Testament theology. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not come on every single God follower. He only came on those who were in a position to really do something special for the Lord, to stand up for the Lord, to stand up for truth, to lead or whatever it was that they needed, and the Spirit would come on them to empower them to do that task. Well in the New Testament, ever since the days of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells every single person who trusts in Jesus for eternal life. It's not like the Old Testament. They, only a few people got uh, you know immersed or filled with the Spirit today. in the New Testament, Every single person who trusts in Jesus gets the Holy Spirit as a part of the salvation package. When we are saved, at that moment that we trust, the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, actually turning our bodies into a temple of God. And this is one of the other pet peeves of mine: is people who talk about the building that we worship in on Sunday morning, you know, any number of places. They call that the the church, or they call that the house of God. It's that's not correct. It's not theologically correct. It's not biblical. Um, it's, it's just something that has been passed down from generational Christian to generational Christian, but that building is not the house of God. You and I, if we are saved, we are the house of God. We are the temple of God. That building that we worship in on Sundays is just a building. We're the temple of God because God's spirit lives in us. Furthermore, uh, he will never leave us and is our guarantee that all who trust in Jesus will finally arrive in God's presence to enjoy him forevermore. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would leave uh, when he was grieved. In the New Testament, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but he's not going to leave us. He will not leave us. And so that's the, there's a difference there in Old Testament theology and New Testament theology regarding the work of the Holy Spirit we need to know that. The second matter regarding the Spirit is that there is a baptism and a filling of the Spirit. And uh, here in Acts 1, it talks about the baptism of the Spirit. And in fact, in Acts 2, we read about uh, you know the, the Holy Spirit coming. And so we need to understand what's going on as far as the baptism and the filling. Those are two different things. The baptism of the Spirit as we read about that in scripture in new testament theology the baptism of the spirit talked about in verse 5 acts chapter 1 verse 5 is understood to be the moment the holy spirit enters a believer at the point of baptism at the point of salvation i'm sorry i made a mistake the whole, the the baptism of the spirit enter uh that happens the moment the holy spirit enters a believer at the point of salvation he quote baptizes them and in so doing, identifies every believer with Christ. That, that's what baptism is, is it identifies us with Christ. And the Holy Spirit, by virtue of it being Christ's Spirit coming to dwell inside of us, he identifies us with Christ. And so that's the baptism of the Spirit. Baptists believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we believe it happens at the point of salvation. It happens one time. One time in your life. You cannot be baptized in the Spirit more than once. It happens at the point of salvation. And since we can only be eternally saved once, baptism of the Spirit only happens once in the life of a believer, right? We see that. We understand that. The baptism of the Spirit. So what is the filling of the Spirit? We read of the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 1. The filling of the Spirit is talked about in other places like in Ephesians 6, uh, 18 or 5, 18, the filling of the Spirit refers to an event that happens multiple times in the life of a believer. In complete dependence upon God's Spirit, a believer complies with the command of Ephesians 5.18 where it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. And they, when they apply the biblical principles for how that happens... Um, then it allows them to be filled with the Spirit. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the Holy Spirit who is already in them is, as it were, given permission to rule in our life. You know, the Holy Spirit, infinite in power, and yet he will not violate our will. And so we can quench the Spirit and we can be filled with the Spirit. As the Spirit is given this control, as we are filled, then uh, we are enabled to live the life that God has called us to live. Yet in Ephesians 6.17, it tells us that the weapon that the Holy Spirit uses is God's Word. You know, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have got to study. We have got to memorize. We've got to internalize the word of God. We've got to get into our Bible so that our Bibles get into us so that we give the Holy Spirit the weapon that he desires to use in our life. So if we want the spirit to lead us, to fill us, we must be about the business of getting God's word into us. And uh, regarding the, the filling of the Spirit, if I was really to just water that down, um, it, it, would, it would be this. It would be, we, one, we have to be in God's Word. We have to be in God's Word. But just because we're in God's Word doesn't mean we're filled with the Spirit. We have to be emptied before the Holy Spirit can fill us. We have to be emptied. So what do we empty ourselves of? Sin and self. That's what we empty ourselves of, sin and self. We can only be as filled with the Spirit and as controlled by the Spirit as we are emptied of self-rule and as we are emptied of sin. God is not going to fill a a, a dirty vessel. And if we have unconfessed, unrepented of sin within our life, God's not going to fill us. And so the filling of the spirit is something that we see happen throughout the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter one verse five, where it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we understand that to be a one time event that takes place. Now again, realize that in the book of Acts, things are just getting started, and so things are not yet normative that we're looking at things that are not really the way things. Will eventually be as they normalize. Uh, And so we see that, you know, they're talking about the baptism of the Spirit, but uh, now that happens whenever someone is saved. Well, in verse 6, and we got to pick up the pace, in verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus if he was about to set up his earthly kingdom at that point. Jesus responded by telling them that God's timeline was none of their business. (laughs) They were instead to focus on what God had commissioned them to do look at acts chapter 1 verse 8 but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth so to be jesus witnesses uh, they were simply to tell what they'd seen and experienced right that's what a witness is you just tell what you've seen tell what you've experienced They were to tell people about Jesus, what he had taught, and why he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And as they testified about Jesus, as they bore witness to Jesus, what they had seen and what they experienced, they were then to call people to follow him. So where were they to be a witness for Jesus? What was their sphere in which they were to be a witness? Where are we to be a witness for Jesus? Well, we observe in Acts 1.8, that we are to begin where we are and work out from there. In fact, we observe that there are concentric circles in Acts one Now, if you're not familiar with what a concentric circle is, imagine, if you would, that you've got a bow and arrow in your hand and you were aiming at a target, or you've got darts and you're aiming at a target. Look at that target in your mind's eye right now. It's got the red bullseye, and then it's got a circle around that, and then a bigger circle around that, and then finally you got the biggest circle of all around that. That's what concentric circle's in. It's a small circle, and then it's a bigger circle, Around that, and then a bigger circle around that. So we see that there are four concentric circles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it uh, tells us that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the ends of the earth. So it begins in their city, the smallest circle, the city of Jerusalem. Then their witness was to expand out to their country, the country of Judah. That's a little bit bigger of a circle. And then they were to go even farther to neighboring nations where their was racial tension, like in Samaria, the circle is bigger. And finally, they were to go even farther out to, quote, the ends of the earth. That's the biggest circle of all, and that's the size of the earth. So when we look at the progression of the gospel in the book of Acts... We see that the narrative generally follows the progression of Acts 1:8. What started in Jerusalem, the smallest circle, was all over the world by the end of the book of Acts. Friend, our churches should be involved in missions locally and abroad and everywhere in between. Look at Acts 1:8 to determine what your Jerusalem is and then be a witness for Jesus there then define your judea and your samaria and do missions there and finally at least one place internationally where find at least one place internationally where you can be a witness Uh, and do missions there. Acts 1-8 is a command, but it's also a call to an adventure locally and beyond. I know very few people who have gone on mission locally and beyond who are not people that get excitement in their eyes when they think about all that God has done and what God may do in, in the future. I'm telling you, people that just sit back on yeah, you know, the old phrase, sit back on their blessed assurance and don't do anything with the gospel, don't do anything with their life. They tend to, like Adrian Rogers, a former pastor of mine, used to say, sit, soak and sour. And uh, that's, that's no good. I mean, whenever we, uh, we are not to sit, soak, and sour, he said, we are to serve. And whenever we're involved in mission opportunities locally, uh, beyond, uh, abroad, and everywhere in between, man, there's a sense of adventure and excitement that comes with that. Well after Jesus said this, uh, we read in verses 9 through 8, 9 through 11 that Jesus was taken up on a cloud and we're also told that angels proclaimed that Jesus would come back one day just like he left. One of the many intriguing things about this text is that Jesus took his body to heaven with him. Is uh, his resurrection body that he had had on earth for 40 days after he rose from the dead was the one in which he ate? He was hugged in that body. He still had his scars that he offered to let Thomas see and touch. So it was a very physical body, remarkably similar to our own, and yet he took that body to heaven with him in Acts 1. That tells me that heaven is much more real than we often think that it is. There are currently people there with bodies like we have here. It also reminds me that the future heaven is spoken of in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, and the final heaven is going to be a brand new, real, physical earth with new heavens, new space out there. Friend, heaven isn't some mystical place out there on the clouds. It is a real, physical existence in a body on an earth. If this isn't true, then Jesus, wherever he is right now in heaven, is completely out of place because he took his physical body with him to heaven, and he's got it with him right now. Heaven is real. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, then they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So, I mean, I just like pointing out little things that maybe we don't see as we read through this. How far is a Sabbath day's journey well, the Sabbath day's journey is, uh, according to this text, is the distance from the Mount of Olives to the place in Jerusalem, to their place in Jerusalem. Well, if we look at it, Exodus chapter 16, verse 29. Uh, the people of Israel were not on the Sabbath to go beyond their place. Okay, so how far does their place extend? Well, according to Numbers chapter thirty-five, verse five, the people of Israel were to measure off three thousand feet outside each of their cities for the outer boundaries of their pasture lands. So this land, uh, this this land, uh, it, it belongs to them. It was their place. So putting these two verses together, some have speculated that a Sabbath day's journey was no more than about 3,000 feet or a little more than half a mile. And so that is roughly the distance depending on where they were on the Mount of Olives and where where the house was that they went to in Jerusalem, but it would have been really close to half a mile. When the group of disciples, women, the mother of Jesus, and her sons arrived back in Jerusalem, they went to the second-story room of a home. And Luke points out that they prayed in that room. In fact, he writes that they all were continually united in prayer. I love that. Matthew Henry, the great Presbyterian pastor and author of the 1600s who oversaw the commentary project called the Matthew Henry Commentaries, he once said, when God intends great mercy for his people, he first of all sets them praying. If I were to say that in just normal English, before God does something really amazing among his people, he gets them praying first. This is so true. Before God does something wonderful, he gets us to praying. And prayer is a theme that appears on just about every page of the book of Acts. The church prayed and God's Holy Spirit moved. I don't believe that God's pattern has changed. God simply isn't moving among so many of our churches now because we aren't praying as the first century church did. Well, during one of their gatherings, the Apostle Peter stood up and spoke, and we're told in verse 15 that there were about 120 people present. We know from passages like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that there were at least 500 Christians in the world at that moment, maybe many more. But God was about to explode this relatively small number into a massive movement in the very next chapter. But first, these folks needed to have a business meeting. This is one of the reasons why I speculate that they were Baptists. <laughs> they had to have a business meeting while they were together. Peter got up and said that the Old Testament prophecies had to be fulfilled, which talked about Judas. If you read you know what he said in Acts 1, that's what you're hearing him say. He got up, he said that the Old Testament prophecies had to be fulfilled, which talked about Judas. Yet Judas' name appears nowhere in the Old Testament. So what's Peter talking about? When we look for the verses that Peter quoted, we do find that he is quoting Scripture. He was quoting Psalm chapter 69, verse 25, and Psalm chapter 109, verse 8. But those passages don't mention Judas. So what do we have to make of this? Well, I love the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's a two-set commentary. It's a little bit pricey now, uh, but I got it back in the 90s. And uh, I tell you, it's just wonderful. And it claims that the Psalms that spoke of the reigning Old Testament kings, you know, those Psalms in the book of Psalms, when they talked about the king uh, that was reigning, the uh, the Old Testament saints... Uh, read those, and it referred to their king, but the New Testament believers ultimately looked to those psalms and realized that they were ultimately pointing to the final ruler, King Jesus. And so when they read those kingly psalms, they were saying that that was pointing to Jesus. This is why Jesus quoted Psalm 22 verse 1 when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting scripture when he said that. Many of the things in the Psalms were prophetic even though they didn't appear to be. This is why so many scholars believe that if you cannot see Jesus in the text, you haven't truly understood the text. The New Testament believers looked to the kingly psalms and they saw that they were ultimately pointing to King Jesus and that's what Peter's doing. And so, getting back to our point, when those psalms talked about an enemy of the king, the New Testament believers took that to potentially refer to enemies of Jesus. That's why Peter quoted the verses that he did. Just listen to the following verses in their context that Peter quoted when talking about Judas. Again, Judas' name is not mentioned here, but these were enemies of the king. And so therefore, Peter was recognizing that this was referring to prophetically an enemy to King Jesus, which clearly was Judas. So let me read to you Psalm 69, verses 24 through 28. Peter quoted verse 25, but I'm going to read the verses in their context. Pour out your rage on them and let your burning anger overtake them. Now, this is the part Peter quoted. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. And that's where he stopped. Let me continue reading in the psalm, Psalm 69. For they persecute the one you struck and talk about the pain of those you wounded. Charge them with crime on top of crime. Do not let them share in your righteousness. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. So as Peter was looking at that text, Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, was seeing that this was referring to the one who was mistreating Jesus and therefore someone who needed to be punished, and he was seeing Judas in that text. Well, there was another passage that uh, Peter quoted, and it was uh, Psalm chapter uh, 109, verse 8. Peter was reading Psalm 109 and saw that as prophetically speaking of Judas. So let me read this, but let me read the, the, the context, Psalm 109, verses 7 through 10. When he is judged... Let him be found guilty, and let his prayer be counted as sin. Let his days be few. This is what Peter quoted. Let another take his position. That's where he stopped quoting. And let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children wander as beggars searching for food far from their demolished homes. And so when Peter was reading those texts, even though they did not specifically speak of Jesus, they didn't specifically speak of Judas, as Peter was reading those texts, he saw that they were referring to the enemy of the king, and therefore that must be ultimately referring to Judas. Well, there's one more item that seems to be contradictory in regard to how Judas died, and we read about it in Acts chapter 1. First, listen to the apostle Matthew tell us of how Judas killed himself and then listen to how Luke in Acts 1:18 tells us how Judas died. Matthew chapter 27 verse 5. Listen to this. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed, right? That's Judas, right? And listen to the rest of the verse. Then he went out and hanged himself. So how does Matthew say that he died? He hung himself. It was suicide. Listen to Acts chapter 1 verse 18 in the chapter that we're reading. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages now technically Judas did not buy that field but it was with his 30 pieces of silver that the uh, religious folks bought a field so it was Judas's money that purchased the field so this statement is correct now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages he fell head first his body burst open and his intestines spilled out well that's pretty grotesque but that's not a hanging you know, so it seems like Matthew 27 5, which says he hung himself, and Acts 118 saying he fell head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out, those don't sound like the same thing. At first glance, the two accounts seem to be contradictory yet. They are easily reconciled if Judas if we understand that Judas hung himself maybe high in a tree or on a cliff's edge. And it's not far-fetched to imagine that as he jumped to hang himself, the branch broke, he fell, and the jagged rocks below sliced his stomach open. And it's a fitting way for such an evil person to die. So that both of those passages are true. When we arrive at uh, verses 21 and 22, Peter uses his understanding of the Old Testament passages to say that Judas needed to be replaced. Right, We read that in the Psalms a while ago. Further, he needed to be replaced at that moment with someone who had been with Jesus throughout the time uh, of his earthly ministry. So Peter is pushing for a move, he's pushing for him to be replaced, he's pointing to Scripture as his basis, and saying it needs to happen now, and it needs to be somebody that was with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. Well, some have speculated that Peter acted too hastily. I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But it certainly is easy to follow the line of reasoning that he did act too hastily. Once again, remember that when the Bible tells us what happened in a story, it does not tell us if it, it typically does not tell us if the action was right or wrong, the reader is left to determine the morality of that. The narrative just tells us what happened. So we know that Peter pushed for a move. He pushed for a decision to get someone to fill Judas's place. He pointed to scripture as his basis for that move, um, but... One of the things we also realize is that Peter repeatedly stuck his foot in his mouth and got ahead of Jesus when Jesus was on earth, and he did that quite often, and Jesus had to correct him. Now Jesus is not here to correct him. Is it possible that Peter is moving too quickly? Some have speculated that the Apostle Paul should have been the 12th. I think that suspicion or that the possibility of that to be true I think it's at least plausible. I think it's at least worthy of thinking about. Just listen to the Apostle Paul speak of Jesus' death, resurrection, and then his appearance to his followers. Listen, I'm going to read you a text from 1 Corinthians, and I want you to listen to what Apostle Paul says. When Paul speaks of himself, it sounds as if he's saying that he regretted coming along too late to be a part of the inner group. Okay, so let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 8. Listen to the apostle Paul. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now listen to this last part. Last of all, As to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. (laughs) And do you hear the Apostle Paul saying this? He said, I came along at the wrong time. I was born at the wrong time. If I'd have been born earlier, I could have been maybe one of the apostles. I think that's what he's saying. I wonder if Paul, instead of being the 13th apostle, if he shouldn't have been the 12th apostle. We just don't know. Well, this chapter ends as Peter leads the gathering to fill the 12th spot, and two men are nominated, and those two men are Joseph and Matthias. And the group prayed, asking the Lord to show who he had chosen to fill Judah's spot. And then they cast lots, or you know, we would say voted, and Matthias was chosen to be the 12th apostle. Whether Matthias should have been the 12th apostle, God's Holy Spirit was about to empower these folks for ministry. The small group of disciples, this small group, was about to become a movement that would take the world by storm. That's why the book of Acts is not primarily referring to the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else could explain how quickly Christianity would take the world by storm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are such a product of our times. We look around us and we see churches doing their thing and think that this is the way that things should be. Yet when we look at the book of Acts, we realize that there is so much more of you to be experienced. There's so much more work to do, so much more joy to have, so much more hardships to endure for your sake. Help us, Lord, to be content in our circumstances, but help us to never be content in our experience of you and our service for you. Cause us to always want more. And then as we comply with biblical principles we observe in the book of Acts, please help us experience true revival in our hearts, our churches, and across our land. We pray this in the name of the one who turned the world upside down with the gospel and who can do it again. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at matsmusings.net and I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.